Hello and welcome to the British Elections podcast. This is the fifth episode of the series on the 1950 election with me, Tim Smith. In today's episode, I'm going to cover the final week of the election of 1950. That's the week running up to Thursday, the 23rd of February, which was polling day. In this episode, I'm going to talk about Churchill and Attlee making their final radio broadcasts of the campaign, um, some of the statements that the leading politicians made, and then how the newspapers summed up in their final editorials. I also want to say a few words about the demographics of the 1950 election, and how that might compare to now, and a couple of other consequences coming from these demographics. So I hope you enjoy the episode, and without any further ado, we'll go straight uh, to the broadcasts. So Churchill was first up um, with his final broadcast on the evening of Friday the 17th, and he returned to his main themes of the election. He said that Attlee and Cripps had revealed that there would be more levelling down to come. He warned that they were planning to increase taxes on on unearned income, He said that it would completely wreck the savings culture that they claimed to support. He said that their socialist ideology was also a threat to the fabric of the nation. As well as a number of negative attacks on the government, he also repeated some of his party's more positive pledges. He repeated the themes of wanting to cut taxation and also to cut government spending. He said that the government was now spending £3,300 per year, we would now call that 3.3 billion, but in those days they, they didn't. Uh, and he said, then a staggering number. He said that if Labour refuses to cut that, then someone else will. He said that his mission in life was peace. The reason he was standing again for office at his great age, as such an old man, was to see if he could not get something done with Russia. Attlee, in his broadcast, Um, used it to counter many of the claims he said that Churchill had made during the campaign, and also warn of a last-minute Tory stunt. And this was going to be a theme that a number of Labour spokesmen were going to take up over the next few days. The Nuffield study after the election described Attlee's performance as sober, dignified, humane, and an honest talk, but it said that even the most ardent supporter of his sentiment of its sentiments would would not find very much in its contents or delivery that was absorbing or inspiring. Attlee talked through the main themes of that his government have the achievements of his government, and expressed confidence that a new re-elected uh, Labour government would be able to take things forward on the uh, same basis that they'd done in the previous five years. He defended his record and also attacked some of the Conservatives' plans. One of the uh, ardent supporters that did have something positive to say was the Daily Herald. It said that Attlee had demolished the Tory leaders' claims on foreign policy and also on petrol rationing. But aside from that, it is rather f- hard to find something that's uh, very po- other positive copy about Attlee's broadcast. It does seem that the media rather agreed with the Nuffield study, although they didn't um, queue up to attack Attlee. It did seem that this last broadcast, which got about 44% of the listening public um, to to, to listen, um, was a bit of a dud. Churchill received 51% for his uh, broadcast, according to audience research that was published after the election. 
So that takes us into the final three days of campaigning, the Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. And as the, they got going, uh, Monday's Daily Express released the final poll of the election campaign. This is um, the BIPO series, which is Gallup's UK affiliate. And it showed the Conservatives at 46 versus Labour on 44.5% uh, with the Liberals at 9. So the Conservatives 1.5% ahead of Labour. And that's up for the Conservatives. Uh, the previous poll had them tied at 45%. Both sides accused the other of planning a last-minute stunt. Lord Walton said that the Labour Party was spreading a whispering campaign that Churchill was actually dead. Morrison said that he'd uh, heard information that had reached the Labour Party that the Tories were going to do a last-minute stunt after the final broadcast so that the Labour Party couldn't effectively respond. Labour's General Secretary, Morgan Phillips, found a piece of Tory election literature from marginal seats in East Anglia, um, which said, which left him shocked at a blatant, dishonest piece of literature. The leaflet in question said that Labour was planning to collectivise farming, Soviet-style, and that was on the back of some comments from, made by an eccentric member of the Fabian Society. One wonders, though, whether Mr Phillips made a bit of a mistake in challenging the leaflet with, with such denial and outrage. What is now often called the Streisand effect, whereby your intention to suppress information or some sort of report only draws more attention to the report in question. And in this case, perhaps the public were, were then brought to the attention about this collectivisation and it caused some suspicion. It, of course, it was complete and utter nonsense. The Labour Party had no such intention. On the Monday, a row broke out between Labour's deputy leader, Herbert Morrison, and the management of the London Stock Exchange. Morrison said that the moves up and down, what we might call just volatility, in stocks ahead of the election was flippant. He said that it was a great pity that the stock exchange should fool about influenced by politics that 75% of its members didn't understand. The stock exchange chairman, John Braithwaite, expressed surprise, saying that it was Mr Morrison who was mistaken. Prices moved up and down on countless transactions, not on the whim of the exchange itself or indeed its members. He said that the exchange could no more change prices than King Canute could order the tides. He said that every ignorant attack on the city is an attack on the UK itself. Morrison, unperturbed by the row, with people many in his party would have regarded as plutocrats, continued to make high-profile interventions. In a speech on taxation, he outlined how Labour had cut tax for working people, reducing the standard rate from 10 shillings to 9 shillings, and increasing the earned income allowance from a tenth to a fifth. So, in money that uh, people might understand now, this meant that the marginal rate for earned income up to the surtax threshold, which is £2,000, was the marginal rate had been reduced basically from 45% during the war to 37.5% by 1950. So, in fairness to the post-war Labour government, they did actually decrease the basic rate of income tax for earned income that you earn from your salary. Morrison said that Labour had established a careful balance. If this was upset by the Tories' plans, there would either be mass unemployment or higher prices. On a lighter note, however, The Guardian reported that Mr Morrison had been interrupted. Not as usual by hecklers, 
but by a roaring lion and lioness who were in a cage behind the Labour deputy leader. Not sure why Mr Morrison was campaigning at London Zoo, but there we go. Churchill made one final big speech during the final week. He went up to Oldham in Lancashire to talk about the big issues for in Lancashire, particularly the cotton trade. He said that Labour had done away with the Liverpool Cotton Exchange out of spite, and that the Tories would reverse this if they were returned to office. He said that whilst the cotton industry was not on Labour's list for nationalisation, it was clear that Mr Attlee was going to implement it by stealth. For good measure, he also said that he would bring back the Liverpool and London grain exchanges. He said that these two had been, cl- had been closed at the behest of crazy but well-paid socialist fanatics. He attacked the socialist leadership for criticising wealth and decrying the profit motive in their public speeches, but he said in their own private lives they were greedy and keen to earn money out of the nationalised industries. Churchill also poked fun at the editor of the Manchester Guardian, A.P. Wadsworth. We'll come back to that in a moment. So at this point, all the leading political figures were keen to get their final messages out to the public. The TUC General Secretary, Vincent Tewson, urged trade unionists to reject the Conservatives. He said that he had absolutely no doubt that the Tories wanted to reintroduce anti-trade union legislation, something along the lines of the 1927 Trades Dispute Act. Nye Bevan said that Mr Churchill was a piece of political cheese. He was there to lure the voters into the Tory mousetrap. He said if the Tories win, Churchill would just sit in Downing Street writing his war memoirs while steel barons and bankers would take over. Hartley Shawcross, the Attorney General, warned that if the Tories won and dismantled Labour's economic controls, there would be bankruptcy and mass unemployment. The Chancellor, Sir Stafford Cripps, returned to what he said was Churchill's A-bomb stunt. He said that foreign policy should be a serious and apolitical matter. He couldn't see the world receiving salvation from a meeting between Churchill and Stalin. Leah Manning, who was the outgoing member for the marginal seat of Epping, a seat in fact that Churchill himself had represented before the war, she turned her attention to Dr Charles Hill, the radio doctor, and back to his broadcast that I mentioned in the previous episode. She said she was angry about his broadcast and that it was a bit of a cheek that he made comments in favour of the NHS. He, she said that he had been one of its most trenchant opponents and had poured more bitterness into the debate on health than anyone else. It was a cheek for him to come on with his plummy, unctuous voice and attack what Labour had done for the children. The Prime Minister, Mr Attlee, speaking in his own constituency, asked the electorate to look what was happening in Germany. The new government there, he said, had thrown off the economic controls imposed by the Allies, and the result had been high unemployment and extremely high prices. The shops are full because people can't afford to buy things. He said that Germany was wasting dollars importing luxuries, and that the country could become a breeding ground for extremism. Voters should not allow the Tories to do the same here. On the other side, Eden used his last speech of the campaign to attack Labour hard on nationalisation. He said that voters should think of this election as a referendum on Labour's plans for nationalisation. He said if Labour won, more than a quarter of the workforce would be employed by the state. There was actually a fist fight at a Lord Walton rally, that's the party chairman, in St Pancras, 
although the newspapers reported it was likely to have been a provocation by Communist Party activists. Lord Salisbury, known as Bobberty, said that Labour dismissing Churchill's peace plan was shocking. He said that unless we achieve peace, all the social services were just built on sand. Ernest Marples, who was standing again in Wallasey and was a future Conservative cabinet minister, said that Labour wasn't very keen to talk about the bonds that they'd issued during their, uh, during their time in office. The 2% Daltons they'd issued in 1946 were now worth £69 against a face of 100 and that the Socialist Party had been all too ready to forget the good doctor, this is Hugh Dalton, the former Chancellor, and his achievements. Colonel Lancaster, the Tory spokesman on the coal industry, sought to rebut claims that the Tories were planning to wreck the coal industry. This had been an attack made by Hugh Gateskill. He said that the plan that the party had drawn up was based on the 1944 Reid Plan, which had in fact been supported by all the parties in the war coalition government, i.e. including Labour. There were plenty of political editorials in the final week, uh, is as the newspapers either sought to persuade people to support one party or the other, or in some cases tried to sum up the campaign to help readers make up their own minds. There was a somewhat tongue-in-cheek row between Mr Churchill and the editor of the Manchester Guardian, A.P. Wadsworth, in the final week. In his Oldham speech that I've already mentioned, Churchill expressed irritation that the paper had not made a choice between the two parties, instead making very heavy criticisms of both. Now, my take on the editorials in the Manchester Guardian, and the Manchester Guardian is a really good read in the 1950 election. It's very balanced. Uh, It's very, very well written. It's a real pleasure. My take on it is that there is a slight favour to the Conservatives. If you read between the lines, it looks like there is a slight favour to the Conservatives. And I expect what Churchill was annoyed was that the Manchester Guardian, which has already always been a sort of small L and to some extent big L liberal paper, had not finally formally endorsed his party. They couldn't quite bring themselves to do it. I mean, now hell would freeze over before the, the modern Guardian supported the Conservatives, but they came quite close to it in 1950. Churchill applauded the paper's coverage of the campaign. He said it was the best in the country. But he described the editor as sitting on high, almost a th- or on almost a throne, meeting out justice to 12 million reactionary Tories and 12 million ignorant socialists, whilst the liberal spaniel leaps and plays around his knees, receiving pats. Churchill added that whilst it was all well and good to see articles putting people in their place, now was the time for Englishmen to make up their minds. The Guardian was clearly delighted to be name-checked, and it clearly wasn't in the least bit offended by Mr Churchill's japes. The editorial replied that it was in a difficult situation because it didn't feel it could wholeheartedly support either Churchill or, with the encumbrance of Mr Bevan, Labour. Therefore, the wisest course, the paper said, was for it to tell both sides their faults. In its final editorial on polling day, which it called The Choice, the paper said that today's choice was in many ways more difficult than it had been at the last three elections, 20 years. It said that the Conservatives and Liberals had been mainly focusing on on attacks, whilst the government had been relying on the inertia. It said that neither party had made a convincing case for what should happen when the Marshall aid runs out in 1952. The Financial Times didn't formally endorse either side, but it really didn't need to. 
having welcomed the Conservative manifesto and spilt a lot of ink criticising Bevan, Douglas Jay, and of course uh, the paper's Bet Noir, Chancellor Cripps, and is also had been spending the time warning of new ways of that the Labour Party were planning to tax unearned income, it, it really didn't need to, to bother in endorsing the Conservatives. The paper ran several articles by Sir Roy Harrod. Um, he was Keynes's friend and uh, also the biographer of Keynes, and he was also an outstanding economist in his own right. The Harrod-Domar growth model is named after him. Harrod said that Sterling had weakened and would continue to weaken until and unless the government did something about the fact that the United Kingdom was now a repugnant place to venture capital. Capital would continue to flee until something was done. He said that Labour had actually junked many of Keynes's ideas and that the unemployment of the 1920s might well return when the martial aid ran out. Harrod, who had been a Liberal, like Keynes, had turned Tory and had spoken at this election as a number of events around the country in support of various Conservative and also National Liberal candidates, but he got particularly heavy copy in the FT. The FT on uh, the 18th of February, the Saturday edition, predicted that the Labour Party won that there would be a continuation of heavy government spending, making the inflation and balance of payments worse. It warned of more controls, more nationalisation, more dividend controls, and also labour market inflexibility. On the other hand, if the Conservatives won, there would be tax cuts, a recovery of confidence, less inflation, and less distortions in the labour market. You can see what I mean about not needing to bother to uh, actually endorse somebody. The Lex column on the 22nd of February said that it thought in terms of shares producers would benefit uh, particularly well from the defeat of the Labour government. Companies like Glaxo that were at risk of falling foul of mandatory dividend restrictions would also do very well. It said that industrial equities would struggle to maintain the current levels if Labour was re-elected. Also on the sort of economically liberal end of the spectrum was The Economist. Its final pre-election article was published on the 18th of February, but it wasn't really much of an endorsement of the Conservatives, uh, a party that it might really have been expected to back, given its especially strong opposition to socialism and it couldn't stand Stafford Cripps. It had previously, in several articles, um, accused Stafford Cripps of economic lunacy. It said that there were a number of differences between the two large parties, um, and most of them tell in the favour of the Conservatives. But any preference is lukewarm and negative, that the Tories would simply be guilty of less foolishness than the Labour Party. It said that the country had developed a number of delusions, some of which were now shared by the right, the left-wing delusions, but had now spread to the right of politics as well. It said that the country was deluded in that it thought that consumption and investment could be raised at the same time. The country was deluded that the public sector spends money more efficiently than the private sector and that people do not require incentives to improve efficiency. These delusions need smashing. But the problem is they could be reinforced if the right takes office at a bad moment. The worst possible outcome would be for a weak Churchill government to come in for five years just as the sky darkens and the martial aid runs out. It could end up entrenching some of these delusions if a Conservative government comes in and then fails. So it said maybe better for another five years of Attlee now 
than 25 years of Bevan in the future. For those who were seeking to make up their mind, the Times' final editorials would also have been a bit of a disappointment. The paper said that it was it said that it was time for an end to the colossal cost of food subsidies, but it was unimpressed that Labour had refused to make any cuts at all, and the Conservatives had been rather vague and had put in too many comments about compensations elsewhere if they did do anything. The paper said that it has to be concluded that the courage born of convictions has been absent from both sides. The Telegraph, which was then as it is now definitely on the right of politics, clearly had never heard of the concept of preaching to the converted. They ran a leading article called Facts for Floating Voters, and one seriously doubts that they had very many floating voters amongst their readers. But their strongest point that they made was on employment. They said that they did not believe for a moment that socialist economics had been responsible for securing full employment, that had been achieved due to the gen- generous aid of the USA and Commonwealth, which had allowed us to keep importing food and raw materials without the necessary exports in turn. And that was something that the Labour Party during the campaign had really failed to answer. It was a criticism that the Conservatives and some on the right-wing press had talked about, and the Labour Party had really not engaged with that comment on martial aid. The Telegraph that it added that it thought that the Socialist Party, which it always referred to Labour as the Socialist Party, had been trying to bemuse the public with its choice of language. The campaign had been made, the campaign, Labour's campaign had made little or no reference to unpopular terms like socialism. Instead, it had tried to fool the public by resorting to euphemisms such as fair shares. On the left side, the, un- uh, the Daily Mirror was an unabashed in its support for Labour. On the final Tuesday of the campaign, it said, We support the Labour Party because it has kept its promise, promises and earned our trust. Its policy has been one of fairness and humanity. The choice is between planned progress and conservative promises that do not add up to a workable policy. The paper went on to say the Liberals, meanwhile, must provide an effective opposition before they have the opportunity to lead the country again. The paper said, We believe that the ideas of social justice, with which Labour has led the country and shown the world, are the only effective answer to the spread of communism. A double-page spread sought to personalise its message based on age and gender. It, It showed pictures of an imaginary family, and then gave reasons uh, in captions next to why mum, dad and two youngsters, Mary and George, should vote for Labour. On polling day itself, it told readers, your job, your home, your country are all at stake. Go forward with the people. That's Labour's slogan, go forward with the people. The most uh, vitriolic of all the left-wing papers was the Daily Herald. Uh, It said that Stalin had torpedoed the Tory campaign by rejecting his plans for a UK-Russia summit, and it quoted Moscow Radio, which seems a rather unreliable source, but apparently somebody on Moscow Radio had said that Churchill's idea of a summit was a reflection of the bankruptcy of his leadership. In the Daily Herald's editorials, it got particularly vitriolic. It asked if the country would choose needs or greeds. The paper said, you have a simple choice to make at the poll tomorrow. It is between Labour, 
the party that gives absolute priority to the needs of the nation as a whole, and Toryism, which champions the greed of a minority. Labour has given you full employment. It has done so by skilful economic planning and controls, which have prevented profit snatchers from dissipating the nation's limited resources. The Tories, it went on, ruled so badly that unemployment averaged one and three quarter million for the 20 years before the war they were in office. Unrepentant, they have railed against control since the 1945 election because they are the profit snatchers party. On polling day, the paper's editor was keen to share his opinion with readers about the difference between the leaders. He said that he was impressed by the thoughtful quietness to which audience had listened to Mr Attlee's speeches, maybe they were bored, but anyway, and the arguments which he put put to them, in contrast with the stunts of Mr Churchill. The nation's most read newspaper was the Daily Express, and that was as pro-Tory as ever. On the final Wednesday, it thought it had found a gotcha, with a report that the Attlees had stayed at a private hotel in Carlisle during their tour of the country. The paper had asked why they'd done that when there were state-owned hotels available in Carlisle. Carlisle, after all, was supposed to be the centre of the state-owned hotel business. Goodness knows why, but anyway. The paper also proudly reported that Nye Bevan had said that he never read the newspaper. And on the final Tuesday, it ran a scare story about aircraft manufacturing jobs being under threat from Labour. Its final editorial, which was almost certainly at least part written by Max Beaverbrook, called for, quote, peace with Winston. The stakes are too large to let any nation stand on pride. When the country needed planes and tanks, the paper said, he got them. Now the country needs homes. He will get them. And most outrageously of all, it juxtaposed its article in favour of Churchill. That's fair enough. But it juxtaposed it with a picture and a comment from President Truman. And it looked like, if you just looked at it uh, uh, casually, it looked like it was an outright endorsement from the American president. Of course, the comments the President Truman made was nothing of the sort. So that brings us to the end of the campaign. I want to look at some of the issues that didn't get much of a look in. Let's start with Scottish and Welsh affairs. There was very little national interest in in those at all. In his Edinburgh speech, Churchill had referred to the risks of Scottish nationalism, saying that by over-centralising in London, the risk of Scottish nationalism could increase. But it was more a sort of attack on the Labour Party than really being about Scotland. The Liberals had unsuccessfully asked the BBC to allow a Welsh-language radio broadcast, but since they were strong in Welsh-speaking Wales, this is probably not much of a surprise. Northern Ireland fails to get a look in at all, other than the apparently perennial issue of mass impersonation of electors in the province. This time it was in Londonderry, and the Guardian said that there had been some impersonation there. The FT said that it was surprised that there hadn't been more of an in-depth campaign on nationalisation, uh, given the noise made by some of the government's intended targets before the start of the campaign. It said that whilst some of the Conservative speakers, including, of course, Churchill himself, had attacked Labour's apparent keenness on nationalisation for nationalisation's sake, as they put it, there were very few specifics apart from Dr Charles Hill's attack on the mutualisation of insurance. That was in the broadcast that I mentioned before. 
And of course, and doc, the, the paper said that Dr. Hill had implied there could be an attempt to rob policyholders of their premier. I think that's a rather unfair criticism by the FT. I think the Conservatives did talk about nationalisation. I think it is a bit interesting, though, that Labour, um, although they did talk about the insurance campaign, were a little bit coy on some of the other uh, targets that they had in mind. Largely absent as a major issue was the NHS. Whilst in modern campaigns we heard nothing but uh, about what's going on in the NHS, it was more... um, Labour speakers had stressed their achievement in creating it in the first place, uh, but the Conservatives accepted the NHS as a fait accompli, and there was no serious suggestions that they had plans to cut its funding. The Labour Party didn't run any scare stories saying that the uh, that, that, that you know there was going to be health cuts or or, or, or problems for wages for nurses or doctors. Uh, it's interesting, Tory speakers really didn't feel the need for any kind of sort of safe-in-our-hands reassurances that they would feel the need to in later elections that they might do today. Social issues like crime and disorder, immigration and race, family life, childcare and even education were off the agenda. One person who's completely missing from the campaign is the Home Secretary, James Shooter Eid. In more recent campaigns, the Home Secretary and the Shadow Home Secretary have often been front and centre because there's so much controversy around uh, some of those home affairs issues that I've mentioned. But in as the Manifestos Project, I mentioned the Manifesto Project in, in, a, in a previous uh, episode, and its scores for the two larger parties at the 1950 election on social issues, finds that they're really very close together. There's no material cleavage between the two main parties on some of those issues. Um, and others are just not uh, are just not around at that election. The Liberals are on the small L side of both parties, um, small L Liberal side, I mean, on, of both parties. And they did raise some of the issues. Uh, racial equality is something that they raised, but it didn't really have any cut through. On the education debate, um, there was no difference between the parties. They both appeared to support the 1944 Education Act, which had a tripartite system of of schools. Uh, The key thing was selection to get into the grammar school. Um, About a quarter of the children who passed the 11-plus examination went into grammar schools, and the rest went to technical schools or uh, secondary moderns. But the Labour Party hadn't turned its attention to selection in education, Actually, as it happens, uh, there there are motions at the Labour Party conference that autumn, 1950. But um, the kind of explosive debate about grammar schools uh, doesn't, and to turning them into comprehensive schools, doesn't come up until um, well into the 1950s. So finally, I want to say a few words about the voters of the 1950 election. I think it's important to stress that many of the demographics of the election electorate were, were different to those of today. Despite a higher voting age of 21 rather than 18, the lower life expectancy uh, in 1950, but also the huge loss of men who'd been born in the 1880s and 1890s in World War One, meant that the there was a much far fewer older people than there are today the median eligible voter was probably around 40 i don't have an accurate number but it should have been around 40 versus 49 today so considerably younger 
The sort of jobs that people did were also very different in 1950 to now. At the 1951 census, so just a year later, 8% worked in agriculture and extraction versus around 1% now. So there are absolutely no coal mines at all now, whereas several percentage points worked in, in, in mining. 40% worked in manufacturing or other productive industries, as opposed to around 15% now. And services have filled the gap, rising from just over half to 84% of employment in, 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 as of 2019. The proportion of women in the labour market has also increased enormously. So uh, around the 1950 election, it had fallen back from quite high levels during the, the war when women were expected to come into the factories. Uh, it was down to about a third at the, at the time of the 1950 election versus three quarters in 2019 when it peaked before the pandemic. The 1951 census data tables don't contain any information on ethnicity. We do know that a few early Windrush era migrants had started to arrive uh, and they'd come from the colony. Uh, they were actually still colonies in the Caribbean. They hadn't yet got independence and joined the Commonwealth. Um, all of these people had the right to vote, uh, as in fact Commonwealth citizens still have today. But the proportion of what you might call non-white minority voters was likely to have been extremely small. There aren't very many accurate figures until probably 1971, really. The estimates, uh, I've seen some estimates as low as 0.05%. As uh, my guess is probably about a quarter of 1% at the 1950 and 51 elections. And it probably didn't uh, reach 1% until the election in 1964. So race and race voting wasn't really much of an issue at the 1950 election. There were quite a lot of Irish-born voters, and that was a significant factor in some areas. Uh, I'll need to say some more about the Irish vote. It's, it can be quite complicated depending, obviously, whether you're Protestant or Catholic and the parts of the country. But it often had a... a a important factor and sometimes a backlash factor in some of the largest cities. The two most notorious for the sort of backlash were Liverpool and Glasgow. And I'll come on to that when we get to the results in the next episode. Now, one of the other things about the 1950 electorate was that it was also a little bit less experienced in terms of voting. Now, I don't mean in any way that voters were less educated or less informed. Um, you know, you might argue they, although there was less media, they might might have read more about it then. There might have been less celebrity news, but you can argue that many ways. But it's nothing to do with that. As I've always, as I've already said, the electorate was younger than today's electorate, and there've been considerably fewer general elections in the past fifteen to twenty years. So any voter who'd been born after nineteen eleven and who was 38 or 39, and that's almost half of the eligible electorate, assuming that the, the median age was around 40, which I think is right. Anyone born after 1911 would have come of age in 1932 after the uh, last but one election, and so thus would only have had an opportunity to have voted in the general elections of 1935 and 1945. So just two elections for half the the electorate, basically. And I think now I'm still younger than the median age of the electorate, and I voted in six. 
And another thing I did was have a look at uh, my uh, grandfather's family uh, to see how many uh, elections they might have voted in as, as we approached the 1950 election. And it's rather interesting because my grandfather was actually of age in 1945, um, but he actually told me he missed the opportunity. Um, like many youngsters in that election, he was, of course, serving. He was serving in the RAF, and he didn't actually get a postal vote. It didn't get to him. Um, so he'd missed the opportunity in 1945. My grandmother, as it happens, just missed it by a month uh, in June 1945. Um, going a generation back on my grandfather's side, my great-grandmother had been born in 1895 and married in 1916, but women were unable to vote unless they were married and at least 30 until the 1929 election. And so she missed the one in 1924 because she was still 1929. So she had to wait until 1929 and so therefore had only voted in four and going another generation back, my grandfather's incredible great-aunt Marguerite was actually still going. She'd been born in 1864. She'd worked all her life in education, but she'd remained unmarried. And so she had to wait until 1929, when she was already 65, and had thus only been also only been eligible to vote at four elections by the 1950 uh, election. And from what I've heard from her about her... Um, from relatives in Wales. I'm certain she would have voted at every one. And the good news is that it's not going to be her last. Um, my great-grandfather uh, was uh, also still going, just coming up to 60. And he was the most experienced voter, despite not being the oldest. He'd been born in 1890 and would have been just shy of 60 by February 1950. His first election would have been in 1918. Thus, he would have been eligible to vote at seven general elections. I suspect that, rather like my grandfather, he probably missed 1918. So, hardly any of them had, had actually voted before the... Uh, none of them had voted before the First World War, and, and only one of them had voted before 1929. So, you can see, uh, you know, just using that one ex one family just as an example of how relatively speaking the the electorate was was uh, fairly new so why does it matter and um, there are two potential reasons one i think is a bit of a red herring and i'll explain why but i still think we need to 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 mention it the first is so political scientists believe that voting for a party becomes habitual it's been shown with um, good quality data that once you've voted the same way three or four times, it's considerably harder to change parties than if you've only voted for a party once. It, it does start to become sticky to an extent. So is it possible, therefore, that this young and relatively naive, and I mean the word naive in, the, in a non-pejorative way, just in experience, could this electorate be more volatile? Um, but the answer to that is actually no. In fact, the swing the swing was moderate in 1950, but it was relatively speaking small. But then after the 1950 election, swings really hardly moved at all until well into the 60s. And a kind of mould um, set in place between the two parties that wasn't really going to shatter properly until the 1970s. 
I think the reasons for this are probably class-based. I think there's some very strong class politics in the 1950s and early 60s. Um, and I'm going to discuss that in more detail in the results sections and also in future elections. But the second implication of this relatively new electorate was that there were very few people left alive by 1950 uh, who would have come of age and voted in the pre-World War I era. And that's significant because the two elections in 1910 were the last where it was a straight fight, a two-horse race, if you like, between the Conservatives and the Liberals. And furthermore, the overwhelming majority of the electorates had joined the role either at the 1929 election or later, in most cases later. But And by the 1929 election, the Liberals were very much the third party. So thus, the proportion of the electorate with, a, if you like, a muscle memory of having voted Liberal at all, never mind as a contender of power, had dropped and it had dropped quite a bit more since 1945 and even more so if you go back since 1935. So perhaps one of the defining features of the electorate in the 1950s is this two-party duopoly and you see a very very high two-party vote between Conservative and Labour put together. So at the 1950 election you've already seen in the coverage that I've tried to um, explain through the last few episodes that the Liberals got very few um, opportunities really to put their message forward. But they also had a, 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 an even bigger problem which is that people had lost this muscle memory of voting for them. So they ran 475 candidates, you know, big attempt. If they thought if they ran almost everywhere with a large number of candidates who would really help them make a revival. But they were running against an extremely strong headwind. And I think that's one of the lessons that we're going to have to look at when we get to the results. And so that brings us to the end of this episode. Next week, I'm going to discuss the results of the 1950 general election. And they took all of the night of the 23rd and the morning of the 24th and the afternoon and the evening of the 24th to come in and for a clear winner to emerge. It was a really rather exciting race. I'm going to discuss how the results unfolded, what happened next, and then I'm going to provide some analysis about what happened where. So sort of talk about the results and how things were differed in parts of the country and have a look at the electoral system. I'm also going to announce the first winner of the Were You Up For Portillo Prize. I thought it might be fun to, at each election, name the most prominent individual to be defeated at the election. Obviously, that means that the 1997 Portillo Prize is Michael Portillo. But anyway, I shall let you know who wins in 1950. I do hope you like this episode and you've liked the podcast so far. Uh, if you do, please share it and rate it on Spotify or Apple or whichever podcast app you listen on. As I said before, and I say it till I'm blue in the face, this is an independent pod podcast, but the um, that really means I need your help in spreading the word. So if you like it, I do hope you'll, you'll help me out. Thank you very much for listening, and I will be back in two or three weeks with the next episode.